Good morning. Show us Christ. Man, I know I say this a lot, but um, I feel like after Austin's prayer and that music, we can just go home. Sermon preached. Sermon preached. But yet we still have 2 Corinthians. So if you would, open your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians. We will be looking today at chapter 4. Chapter 4, we're, we're going to be looking through verses 1 through 6. And it looks like just, you know, a short section, but it is packed full of a ton of things to talk about. And so uh, we're, going to get, we're going to get right into it. So if you would, um, just bow your heads with me and let's pray. Uh, as we go to God's Word this morning, and as Austin um, said, let's pray for God to uh, just soften our hearts that the Word of God may come in. This is why we're here this morning. Okay, join me. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for another day to worship, uh, another day, another Sunday to come together as a body, uh, to lift up one voice, uh, to become one-minded on one truth with one spirit, worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, that you would move, that you would soften hearts, that you would open eyes, open ears, Lord, this morning. Only you can do that. We pray, Lord, that where there might be people in the room today who feel like there is little hope, Lord, you would bring hope to the hopeless. We pray, Lord, that Christ, through the preaching of your word and your word alone, would become the all-satisfying treasure that we need. And we pray, Lord, that the world, as they look upon how we behold you and love you and find hope in you, that they would be jealous. Oh, God, make the world jealous of the hope that your people have in Christ. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So if you're not there yet, go ahead and get there. And if you have a handout, uh, the passage will be on the handout as well. Uh, handout has some fun little fill-in-the-blanks. Uh, helps, helps me pay attention and follow along. So maybe it helps you too. So here we are, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
This is God's word to us this morning. Again, may we have hearts and ears ready to receive it. Now, if you remember from chapter 3, which I think was about a month ago, maybe a little longer than a month ago, back in chapter 3, we saw Paul give a pretty exceptional description of the new covenant. Namely, in just how much it overshadowed or how much it beat out the old covenant. Right? He says that it is really in every way surpassing the glory of the old covenant. And if you remember, we said glory is to put on display the holiness of God. That's what it means to glorify God, is to put on display for all to see, including yourself, how holy he is. And so the new covenant did this in a particular way as it revealed the holiness of God's Mercy, the holiness of God's love, the holiness of his grace, and as it pointed out that he is the sole author of our salvation. Therefore, he gets the glory. We saw the old produce death, but the new would be, bring that dead person to life. We saw that the old would condemn, but the new covenant would make the condemned righteous in Christ. We saw that the old would fade away, but the new, the new, through the working of the Spirit in you, would never, ever, ever let go of his grip on you. That's the new covenant promise. In fact, it would be the work of the Spirit to not only keep us, to keep us from falling away, but as chapter 3 ended or finished up, it says that he will continuously present Christ to our unveiled face. That's, that's what the role of the Spirit is. He will continue day in and day out to reveal to us through our unveiled face. He will present Christ to us. And through the beholding of Jesus, as we behold his glory, his holiness, that we would be transformed into the very image of Christ. That's how chapter 3 ends. And that was last message. Today, this week is really, and next week is really one message. It's one message, so we'll have one title of the sermon and one main point this week and next. But what we're going to discuss, Lord willing, is what the main implications of this truth is. What, the, what are the implications of this new covenant promise? Meaning, what does it mean to be conformed into the likeness of Christ? What does that mean? We say it all the time. He's conforming us into his image. What does that look like? Does it mean that we just sin a little less? Does it mean that as we become more like Christ, we somehow figure out how to just keep our nose clean a little bit better than we used to? Right? We used, to, we used to just do all these sins, but now we just don't do those sins anymore. And now we just kind of hunker down, keep our nose clean, and wait for his return. Is that what it means to be conformed into the image of Christ? Or does it mean that we are made to think like he thought? Feel and view the world the way Jesus viewed the world and therefore live as he lived. Jesus lived while here on earth as a bold proclaimer. If you look at the life of Christ, he went from city to city, town to town, doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. 
He was a man who feared nothing on this earth. He had his eyes set perfectly on eternity, and he was filled with such hope. He was filled with such hope, with such joy that was set before him that he was able to endure more suffering than you and I could ever possibly fathom. He endured it, sinless, filled with hope. Yes, he was kind and compassionate, and we want to mimic that kind of heart. But when we look at the way Jesus lived his life, he was bold, he was unwilling to relent in regards to proclaiming the truth. That's the kind of man he was. That's the kind of man he is. The hope in our Savior made him a relentless gospel proclaimer. And this is the work of the new covenant in you. This is the work of the new covenant in us. Or another way to say it, it is the work of the Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit of God who took you from a dead person and made you alive. And therefore, he is always working for you in order to produce in you an unbreakable, steadfast hope. The very hope that characterized our Lord Jesus Christ. It is his spirit in us, after all. Ephesians 2 would say that we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship, meaning day in and day out, through the gospel, the spirit is working to conform us into hope-filled co-laborers with Christ to proclaim the glory of his grace to every living creature. And here's the key. It's a perseverant hope, meaning that we are gospel proclaimers no matter what the enemy throws at us. No matter what the enemy threw at Jesus, he persevered and he did not relent to preach the truth. Which is our main point this morning, is that the ministry of the Spirit is always producing steadfast ministers of light. The ministry of the Spirit is always producing steadfast ministers of light. Starting in verse 1, at the, at the back end of verse 1, Paul begins by telling this church body in Corinth, he says that we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. And the word for lose heart, it really become, it means to become deeply discouraged. Like deeply discouraged. And really when you look at the context in which that word is usually uh, used, it means become a coward and quit. It means to become a coward and quit. Or another way to think of it is, it is a cowardly surrender to the adversary. It's a warlike term. We don't lose heart. We don't give up. We don't cower out. We don't bow out. We don't cower and quit. We don't throw in the white flag to the enemy. That is not who we are. Which is an amazing thing for Paul to say, given everything he's been through. That's an incredible thing for him to say, given all that Paul went through. Right? Paul would say later in this very chapter, in verse 8, that he is afflicted in every way. That's his Christian life. Afflicted in every way. Paul was under constant attack. He would say later in chapter 7 that he had conflict constantly without, and he had fears within. He had pressure, constant pressure of how the churches were doing after he's left their presence. In fact, this is an example. 
right here in Corinth. He had been rejected almost everywhere he went. Every city he goes into, he's beaten and kicked out almost every time. And this very church, this very church who God used him to establish, many had turned their back on him as well. I mean, the grit of this man. The grit to just keep moving forward. The grit to persevere and to remain bold and to not relent, but to keep preaching the same message city after city, church after church, rejection after rejection, beating after beating. Anyone else would give up? Paul would not quit. How many of us have been told, you know, maybe you should stop like sharing the gospel at work so much. It's not really safe to do that. You have a family to look after. You know, you, it's not really safe to do that. Maybe you should just tone it down a little bit. Tone it down. Or, you want to go where? Are you sure it's safe? Are you sure it's safe to go there? I wonder how much surrendering has taken place in the church. How much surrendering to the enemy has taken place in the church for the sake of prudence, or safety, or wisdom? The question is, is how does Paul how does Paul have such perseverance or grit or boldness to keep preaching? Our first point is this, is that God's sovereign mercy is God's sovereign mercy that produces steadfast faithfulness to the truth. God's sovereign mercy produces steadfast faithfulness to the truth. So verse 1 actually begins with therefore, which again looks backwards. But he says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart. We don't give up. We should understand that this that this ministry that Paul's referring to is, a, is the new covenant ministry. It is the new covenant ministry that we just talked about. It's the one he refers to back in chapter 3. In verse 6, Paul says that he's been made a servant. Right? It said, who also made us adequate as servants of what? A new covenant. So servant or minister, interchangeable word. He's been made a servant of a new covenant. And he says, not of the law which kills, but of the Spirit who gives life. So Paul is saying that he has this ministry. It's his. It's been given to him. So meaning, what he means by having it is that it is both a service of the Spirit who has worked in him, so it's a gift that's been given to him as a work of the Spirit in himself, and he has it as his own obligation to show to now be a minister of the new covenant, to be a, continue the service, to continue the work that the Spirit did in him, he now continues it, which makes sense, doesn't it? If the Spirit's work is new covenant ministry, and he does it in you and then comes to live in you, then he will continue the work through you. Another way to think of it is that since we have this life in us as a result of the ministry of the Spirit, 
this merciful, undeserving life, we also now have it as our own ministry and work to do as spirit-filled people. Or we might read it this way. Since we are being mercifully renewed day by day from glory to glory, we do not lose heart in continuing the ministry. Paul is so convinced of this truth. He's so convinced of the reality of the new covenant work in him and that the promises of the new covenant are for him. He's so convinced that God is the one who does it all. He's so convinced in the mercy and the sovereignty of God that it was God who will do everything. It is God who saved him in Jesus Christ. It is God who opened his eyes to see Christ. It is God who has filled him, who has changed him, who is still changing him, and it is God who will finish it. And this, this truth so convicts him, he's so affected by the mercy he's received that it makes him unwavering in his faithfulness. It makes him unbreakable in his spirit to be who God has called him to be or to be the new creature that God has saved him to be. And so he begins to address some of the rejections that he refuses to be swayed by. Starting in verse 2, he says, But we have renounced things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This idea of craftiness, it, it means to be deceitful in, in your practices. So in this context, it would be deceitful evangelistic practices. And he's saying, we didn't use deceitful practices. We reject such notions. And to adulterate the word of God was basically to water the message down so that we could make it a little bit more palatable to people to understand and, and come to God. It'd be to water the message down a bit. But essentially, Paul is saying here that we reject such practices. These practices are the works of those who, something, who have something to hide. We have, that's not us. We have nothing to hide. We didn't trick you when we first came to Corinth. We didn't come with a lot of lofty words and man-made wisdom and like all these big million-dollar words. We just came preaching one simple truth. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, he said, I came knowing nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That's the only message I preached. How is that crafty? It's not crafty. This is our, this is our simple Christ-exalting message. And we don't need to think of anything else. We don't need to think outside the box on this one. We just stuck to the simple truth. You see, Paul sees his ministry in light of the new covenant, which means that he knows the simple truth from God is the only way to bear witness that his message is from God. It makes sense. But this, isn't, this is not the tendency of many, including the false teachers who are in this church. This is not the tendency of those who have lost heart. This is not the tendency of those who have surrendered to the enemy. The tendency of many who would bow the knee to the enemy 
is to portray the message as easy to hear. Water it down a bit. Make it a bit more palatable to the fleshly. Make it a little bit more worldly to the worldly. Maybe we can lure them into the church. Maybe we can lure them in. We can appeal right to their worldview with worldly music and using worldly language. We'll hold off on, on the scriptures for a little bit, okay? And we'll just, we'll just use pure emotionalism. We'll just appeal to their emotions. Lofty words backed up with maybe a soft musical instrument, stirring the emotions, but little to no truth. Oh, I don't want to scare them away. Appealing only to the emotions, that's crafty. That's crafty. That's deceitful. Or maybe we'll use the Bible. Yeah, we'll use the Bible. We'll take, we'll take a little verse out of context. We'll use a part of it that everyone agrees with, and then we'll just leave out anything that talks about sin, about the wrath of God, about his justice, his holiness, his holy standard. That's manipulation as well. And that's the character trait of a hopeless person who has lost hope in the simple God honoring truth. But those who see their ministry in light of the new covenant, they know that it is the truth that convicts the heart of man. It is only the truth that convicts the heart of man. Truth that tells us that we are not good. That's hard to hear. But it's the truth. It's truth that tells us that we can do nothing to be good. It's not in you. In fact, truth that tells us that we are dead men walking on our way to a certain judgment and a certain death because, and here's the thing, we have to take responsibility for this, because of our sin. Because of our sin. There's another side of this truth. God has made a way. God has made a way. But the good news is only sweet. It's only sweet if we understand the bad news. And to those whom God has prepared, to those whom heart has softened, to those whose heart has been tilled like good soil, this, this good news will bear weight on the conscience of that person. That's what Paul understands. Do you know why we preach through the Bible verse by verse at Community Bible Church? rather than really just get up here and preach about current events or five ways to help you with stress. I wouldn't do anybody any good. And it's not because we want to just say, well, we're a Bible-preaching church. That's not the reason either. Rather, we understand, that by, we understand by God's grace, as he's revealed to us our own sinful hearts, that left to ourselves, we also would use crafty, Men made ideas to grow this church. We would. We would. But again, by God's grace, we've come to see our own desperate need for God's truth. For the truth that we find in this book. And so it should be the goal of every preacher, every teacher, every Sunday school teacher, every small group leader, doesn't matter who is teaching, it should be the goal of every one of us to first first and foremost, ourselves be convicted by the truth in this book. It is our goal to be first convicted by this, our own sin 
and have our own hearts stirred up to pursue Christ, our own hearts conformed into his image, and our own longing to be used by him to bring people into the kingdom of God, and then to preach, to preach what God has shown us to his people so that you all may also participate in what God has revealed to us in his word. But none of this can happen apart from the truth found only in his word. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and they come to me. So why would I get, want to give you any other voice but his? We must use his. And this goes from the pulpit to the pew. For the preacher and for the conversations around the dinner table or around the neighborhood fire pit or in the workplace or on your children's, be- your children's bedside. Why would we give anyone who we beckon to come to Christ anything other than his words? And so Paul knows that the reason that the church rejects him is not because of the message. See, this is all he wants to do is point people to Christ. And so he's going to stick to the unchanging word of God. And so if the church or people in the church in Corinth reject Paul, he understands that them and others around the world are all going to reject the message. But it's not the message, it's the problem. It is their hearts. It is their ears. It is their eyes. The problem is not the seed, the problem is the soil. So point two is this, that truth rejected by the world is still truth. Truth rejected by the world is still truth. Verse three says this, that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So again, verse three is beginning to look back again at chapter three, as Paul is making reference to the veil that covered the minds and he said he covered the minds and he covered the hearts of the Jews as they would read the old law or God's law. You should understand this is the same veil that's over the eyes and hearts of all who are perishing. It is a veil that keeps people from seeing the richness and the wisdom of the gospel and are therefore unable to love it and unable to treasure it. It's not that they can't see it. It's not that they can't mentally comprehend it. I I was one of them. I was one of them sitting in these pews right here. I could tell anyone the gospel, and every one of you would say amen, but I was not a believer. I got it, but I didn't get it. I couldn't see its beauty. I didn't see Christ as glorious. I just saw facts. So they don't have any problem comprehending the facts. They see the gospel, but what the world sees is they see it as foolishness or unnecessary. Bit of an overreaction on God's part, I might say. Send your son to die for me, and what do I need that for? But why do they think this way? Verse 4 says, In whose case... In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving 
so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So he starts with, in verse 4, talking about the God of this world. This is the great deceiver. This is the serpent of old. And Paul refers to him as a God, not because of any divine properties that are in him, He's not divine in any way, but it is because it is in this world that he is worshipped. His ways are worshipped. His thoughts are worshipped. In fact, the Greek word for world here is actually aeon, which means age. So he's actually referring to to the devil as the god of this age. God of this time period. We know that Jesus owns the world. Jesus owns the world. He owns the whole universe and all that is in it, including Satan. He owns him, and Satan can do nothing apart from God's, namely Christ's, permission. So Satan has no authority. He has no authority at all. He has no power, but he has influence. He has tremendous influence in this age. And so we need to read this and understand that the enemy, while he has no supernatural power to actually literally blind people spiritually, meaning he doesn't have the ability to handicap anyone or force anyone to reject Christ. He doesn't have anywhere near that kind of power. He cannot make you reject Christ. But what he does have is a worldview that our flesh loves. He has a way of looking at the world that our flesh says amen to. The natural bent of the unbeliever or the natural bent of our flesh, our old man, is to love the way Satan thinks. When we say, when we say that When we think of worldly things, we're thinking satanic thoughts. We wouldn't like to think of it that way, but that's the reality of it. There's there's only darkness and light. That's all there is. And so because of this, because we tend, and because unbelievers love the way Satan thinks, we are all very easily manipulated. His schemes are not new. They just work. He didn't have to think up of new lies. He just keeps the same lie going all the time. And we buy it. The lies like, lies like pride is good and humility is weakness. Lies like, just love yourself. Love yourself. Lies like, earthly treasures are most satisfying and ultimately lies are, you are glorious. Own it. That's the greatest lie. That you are God. You deserve the glory. You deserve the credit. Of course we love that lie. Of course we love that lie. It's lie after lie after lie. But our flesh loves it. And it's the love of these lies that makes us the ones that are culpable for our blindness. It is a willing blindness. And it's the love for these lies that blind us to the truth 
The truth that says pride is not good. We have to humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. We must confess our sin. We must cling to Christ as our sole treasure. But you'll never do that if you're the glorious one. He lies to us to keep us from seeing. Seeing what Paul refers to here as the light of the gospel, of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. So the enemy wants to keep us from seeing the light of, of, of. What is that? He's saying that he desires to keep the unbeliever from seeing the truth. That's what light means. Truth revealed, which is the gospel. It is the gospel. The gospel is light. The gospel is truth revealed. And the gospel is the glory of Christ. It is where Christ's glory is revealed. Who reveals God? He wants to keep you from seeing God. So he'll keep you from seeing Christ. If he wants to keep you from seeing Christ, he'll keep you from seeing the gospel. And the way he keeps you from seeing the gospel is he puts his eyes on you instead of him. He doesn't need to make you do anything. He just needs to show you us a mirror, and we love it. So Paul, though, Paul is not swayed by those who reject his gospel message. He's not swayed at all by it. And it doesn't matter what city he goes to, or it doesn't matter if it even happens in this church in Corinth. Any place he goes, because he knows that the message of the gospel is not the problem, but it is the eye, ear, and heart of the listener. He says, look, look, I feel no need to change my message. I feel no need to water it down. And I know those who have bought Satan's lies like I once did, they won't see the reality of what, which again, is what light means. They won't see the truth revealed in the gospel message. They won't see that which is real. And so they won't see the reality of the glory of Christ. They won't see the reality of Christ revealed in the gospel because their eye is just so in love with their own glory. Jesus said that the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is dark, how dark is the light in you? Your eye is the problem. The way we see must be fixed. And so the problem is not the message. So should we change the message? Should we try to attract people who love the world to Christ by appealing to their flesh? No. All right, full circle, full circle here. No, we will not preach or proclaim anything other but Christ is Lord. Amen? We will not preach anything other than Christ is Lord. Lord. Verse 5 says, for we do not preach ourselves. That's what every man-made religion is. We will not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves is just servants. Beggars. Beggars who have found the bread. So point three is this, is that light created in us produces light proclaimed from us. 
Look, listen, Paul is saying that we may not preach ourselves. We don't point to ourselves, but we do preach. Oh, we preach. We preach all the time. The word preach, it means to proclaim. It's not just get up and say a few words. You are actually heralding, proclaiming, and it means you're using authority, but not your own. Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. Christ is King. We are merely servants. We are merely ministers of a message. We are ministers of this gospel truth. Ministers of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Acts 26, Paul recounts what Jesus told him to do. Jesus said he called Paul to open their eyes. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And here's the only way to open the eyes of the blind is with the gospel. So he's saying, why will we never stray from this message? What's at the foundation of why I am so foundationally secure into saying, I'm going to stick to this message? Why will we never let go of this truth? Why will we never add to it or remove from it? Why will we never quit? Why will we never promote ourselves? And the answer is because we, If you're in Christ, we have experienced its power unto salvation. We've experienced the power of the gospel unto salvation through the regenerating work of the Spirit in us. Verse 6 says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness. He's hearkening back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, when God created out of nothing, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was dark and void. But then God said, let there be light, and there was light. With just the power of his word, he said, let there be light, and there was light. And Paul says that this very God, this very God is the one who has shown in our hearts. In other words, The God who said, let there be light at the beginning of all creation has said, let there be light in you. He looked into my dark, hard, rebellious heart. And through the gospel, he said, let there be light. And there was light. And the light turned on. It was him. In the same way, he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus rose from the dead. He did that in us. And so it is God who creates in us new hearts. It is God who looked into our cold, dead, dark, self-loving hearts and said, let there be light. And in that moment, we saw, because that's what light does. It helps us see. I know many of you here say, don't tell me I didn't choose him. You did. You did choose Christ once you saw him. Once you saw him, and that's what he's saying. See, see what? Look at verse 4 again. Look at verse 4 again. It says, 
It was the light of the gospel. It was the light of the gospel that broke in. It was the truth of the gospel that broke into the dark and hardened hearts. Or another way to say it, as Paul says it, is to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do you see the parallelism here? Look at, look at verse 6 and the way he says to give the light of the knowledge. What did he say in verse 4? The light of the gospel. The light of the gospel. In verse 4, he says the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In verse 6, he says the light of the knowledge of the glory of who? Of God. So we have the light of the gospel, glory of Christ, light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The gospel is the knowledge of God. The gospel is the knowledge of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul certainly was saying this because the face of Moses, as it reflected, was only reflecting God's glory, but Jesus fully reveals it. Jesus is not the reflection of God's glory. He is God's glory revealed. And so when God, using the gospel, poured out lights into our heart, what we saw through the gospel was Christ for the first time. How many times you heard the gospel it bounced off your hard heart? When he shined the light on him, you saw him and then you clung to him. It was all because of the work of God. And that's what happens when you see him. You irresistibly cling to him for mercy. This is the miracle of the new birth. This is why the new birth matters so much. May God get all the glory. It is as miraculous as creation itself. Your salvation. Your eyes to see him. It is as miraculous as creation itself. Because in it, God made you a new creation. A new person altogether. And so Paul felt no need to change his methods. He felt no need to think outside the box. And therefore he could not be swayed from preaching the true, simple gospel. The very gospel that God used to create light out of darkness in him. It is God alone who removes the veil and Paul knew it. He was convinced by it, and because it was God alone who had done it in him, he would never, ever stop. You see, to the enemy, to the enemy, Paul was a dangerous man. He was a very dangerous man. But he was just a man, though. Let's not elevate Paul to the status of Christ. He is just a man. But a man being conformed by the very Spirit of God into the image of Christ, which made him dangerous because he carried with him the same hope and heart of Christ. He carried with him the same boldness. He carried with him the same faithfulness of Christ to keep attacking the enemy with the gospel. 
He would preach it to himself, and he would go and he would preach it to others. He would never give in to hopelessness. He would never bow out. He would never quit, and that made him dangerous. And so can you be. So can we be. Because we share in the same spirit, don't we? We share in the same spirit. The very one that filled Paul fills you. Are we growing in the same convictions? Are we growing in the same hope, the same boldness, the same faith? Do we avail ourselves to the same gospel that Paul marveled at every moment of his life? Do you avail yourselves to the gospel continuously? Are we continuing to seek after it in the scriptures, around the dinner table, and are we preaching it to ourselves and to others constantly, constantly, constantly? We have to, because the lies are constant. They're all around you. They're in every TV show you turn on, the radio, book, neighbors, workplace. It's all around you. The worldview of Satan is all around us. His lies are all around us. It's constant. So we fight back with constant gospel preaching to ourselves and to one another. Because the gospel rightly seen it will never produce hopeless surrender. Rather, as we gaze upon him, as we gaze upon Christ, remembering his love his grace, his heart, his zeal, his passion, his boldness, we become like him. We become like him. And we therefore become a people who will not surrender to the enemy. We do not surrender to the enemy. We don't surrender to the trials. We don't surrender in the hardships. We don't surrender to our own sin. In fact, to all of it, we preach the gospel all the time. Because what the enemy wants for people who are blood-bought Christians is to keep you from preaching the gospel. That's all he can do. That's all he can do is sideline you in hopelessness, in fear. He could sideline you, and that's the best he can do because he cannot condemn you. But he can bench you. He can put you on the sidelines, out of the game, like a man at war sitting on the field, putting his gun down, hopeless, feeling like he surrendered. That's what he can do. That's what his aim is to do. And this is all he can do. But we are not ones without hope. We are not ones without hope. When marriages are hard and you start to think to yourself, man, this just isn't working. That's hopelessness. We are not ones without hope. When sickness comes in, when sin, sin seems unkickable, there's sin that plagues you. And you just feel like it's never, I'm, I'm going to struggle with this forever. That's hopeless talk. We're not ones without hope. Jobs overwhelming, stress through the roof, church body disappointing. What will we do? We preach the gospel. 
But we don't say this is hopeless. It's not the words of Christ. We never say this is hopeless. We don't say it's just not working. No, we remember that the God who raised us from, from the dead to newness of life in the gospel is wanting to conform you into a hope-filled, Christ-like, gospel-preaching warrior who never, ever quits. You don't quit your marriages. You don't quit the church. You don't quit fighting sin. We don't quit. Because he won't quit. And he's in you. Which makes you dangerous to the enemy. I want the enemy to look at me this way. I want the enemy to look at me this way. I want him to see a man who on the outside looks like an easy target. But on the inside, I want him to see an unbreakable man who can't be stopped except to kill him. A tense season in marriage won't stop him. Guilt from sin won't stop him. Difficult business won't stop him. Fear won't stop him. Past trauma that wants to keep rising up won't stop him. I want the enemy to look at me as he continues to continuously knock me down and say, why won't you just give up? Because I know my Redeemer lives. I know my Redeemer lives. Therefore, may we all, with unveiled faces, with unveiled face, beholding Christ, say continuously, I know that he's working even through this. So not I, but Christ in me, who beckons me, through the gospel, and empowers me through the gospel, continuously priests to get up. Don't stay down. Get up. Keep reading. Keep praying. Keep pursuing. And keep doing what he's called you to do and attack. Pick up your sword. Attack the enemy. Attack everything in you that wants to give up and you attack it again with the gospel. Christ crucified for you. Spirit regenerating you. Spirit filling you. Spirit working in you. Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. Christ ruling all of this as bedrock under your feet. Again, may the world see your life, your trials, your struggle, and then in it all be jealous of the hope that is in you. Amen.